0: Section 82 of the United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The World's Story, Volume 12, The United States. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 82 How Fort Moultrie was Held for the Colonies, 1776. By George Bancroft. On the morning of the 28th of June, 1776, a gentle sea-breeze prognosticated the attack. Lee, from Charleston, for the 10th or 11th time, charged Moultrie to finish the bridge for his retreat, promised him reinforcements which were never sent, and still meditated removing him from his command, while Moultrie, whose faculties under the outward show of imperturbable and even indolent calm, were strained to their utmost tension. Rode to visit his advanced guard on the east. Here the commander William Thompson of Orangeburg, of Irish descent, a native of Pennsylvania, but from childhood a citizen of South Carolina, a man of rare worth in private life, brave and intelligent as an officer, had, at the extreme point, posted fifty of the militia behind sandhills and myrtle bushes. A few hundred yards in the rear, breastworks had been thrown up, which he guarded with 300 riflemen of his own regiment from Orangeburg and its neighborhood, with 200 of Clark's North Carolina regiment under Horry, and the Raccoon Company of Riflemen. On his left he was protected by a morass, on his right by one pounder and one brass six-pounder, which overlooked the spot where Clinton would wish to land. Seeing the enemy's boats already in motion on the beach of Long Island, and the men of war loosing their top sails, Moultrie hurried back to his fort at full speed. He ordered the long roll to beat, and officers and men to their posts. His whole number, including himself and officers, was 435, of whom 22 were of the artillery, the rest of his own regiment, men who were bound to each other, to their officers and to him, by personal affection and confidence. Next to him in command was Isaac Mott, His major was the fearless and faultless Francis Marion. The fort was a square with a bastion at each angle, built of palmetto logs, dovetailed and bolted together, and laid in parallel rows sixteen feet asunder, with sand filled in between the rows. On the eastern and northern sides the palmetto wall was only seven feet high, but it was surmounted by thick plank so as to be tenable against a scaling party, a traverse of sand extended from east to west. The southern and western curtains were finished with their platforms, on which cannon were mounted. The standard, which was advanced to the southeast bastion, displayed a flag of blue with a white crescent, on which was emblazoned Liberty. The whole number of cannon in the fort, the bastions and the two cavaliers, was but thirty-one, of which no more than twenty-one could be at the same time brought into use. Of ammunition, there were but twenty-eight rounds for twenty-six cannon. At Hadrell's Point across the bay, Armstrong had about 1,500 men. The first regular South Carolina regiment under Christopher Gadsden occupied Fort Johnson, which stood on the most northerly part of James Island, about three miles from Charleston and within point-blank shot of the Channel. Charleston was protected by more than 2,000 men. Half an hour after nine in the morning, the Commodore gave signal to Clinton that he should go on the attack. An hour later, the ships of war were under way. Gadsden, Coatsworth, Pinckney, and the rest at Fort Johnson watched all their movements. In Charleston, the wharfs and waterside along the bay were crowded with troops under arms and lookers on. Their adversary must be foiled, or their city may perish, their houses be sacked and burned, and the savages on the frontier start from their lurking places. No grievous oppressions weighed down the industry of South Carolina. She came forth to the struggle from generous sympathy, and now the battle is to be fought for her chief city and the province. The thunderbomb, covered by the friendship, began the action by throwing shells, which it continued till more than sixty were discharged. Of these, some burst in the air. One lighted on the magazine without doing injury. The rest sank in the morass, or were buried in the sand within the fort. At about a quarter to eleven, the active, of twenty-eight guns, disregarding four or five shots fired at her while under sail. The Bristol, with fifty guns, having on board Sir Peter Parker and Lord William Campbell, the Governor, the experiment, also of fifty guns, and the solabay of twenty-eight, brought up within about three hundred and fifty yards of the fort, let go their anchors with springs upon their cables, and began a most furious cannonade. Every sailor expected that two broadsides would end the strife, But the soft, fibrous, spongy wood of the palmetto withstood the rapid fire, and neither split nor splintered nor started, and the parapet was high enough to protect the men on the platforms. When broadsides from three or four of the men at war struck the logs at the same instant, the shock gave the merlons a tremor, but the pile remained uninjured. Moultrie had but one-tenth as many guns as were brought to bear on him, and was moreover obliged to stint the use of powder. His guns, accordingly, were fired very slowly, the officers taking aim and waiting always for the smoke to clear away, that they might point with more precision. Mind the Commodore, mind the fifty gun ships, were the words that passed along the platform from officers and men. Shall I send for more powder? asked Moultrie of Mott. To be sure, said Mott. And Moultrie wrote to Lee, I believe we shall want more powder. At the rate we go on, I think we shall. But you can see that. "'Pray send us more if you think proper.'" More vessels were seen coming up, and cannon were heard from the northeast. Clinton had promised support. Not knowing what else to do, he directed the batteries on Long Island to open a cannonade, and several shells were thrown into Thompson's entrenchments, doing no damage beyond wounding one soldier. The firing was returned by Thompson with his one pounder but from the distance with little effect." At 12 o'clock, the light infantry, grenadiers, and the 15th Regiment embarked in boats while floating batteries and armed crafts got underway to cover the landing, but the troops never so much as once attempted to land. The detachments had hardly left Long Island before it was ordered to disembark, for it was seen that the landing was impracticable and would have been the destruction of many brave men without the least probability of success. The American defenses were so well constructed the approach so difficult, Thompson so vigilant, his men such skillful sharpshooters, that had the British landed, they would have been cut to pieces. It was impossible, says Clinton, to decide positively upon any plan, and he did nothing. An attack upon Hadrill's point would have been still more desperate, though the Commodore, at Clinton's request, sent three frigates to cooperate with him in that design. The people of Charleston, as they looked from the battery with senses quickened by the nearness of danger beheld the sphinx the acteon and the siren each of twenty-eight guns sailing as if to get between hadril's point and the fort so as to enfilade the works and when the rebels should be driven from them to cut off their retreat it was a moment of danger for the fort on that side was unfinished but the pilots kept too far to the south so that they ran all the three upon a bank of sand known as the lower middle ground Gladdened by seeing the frigates thus entangled, the beholders in the town were swayed alternately by fears and hopes. The armed inhabitants stood every one at his post, uncertain but that they might be called to immediate action, hardly daring to believe that Moultrie's small and ill-furnished garrison could beat off the squadron, when, behold, his flag disappears from their eyes. Fearing that his colors had been struck, they prepared to meet the invaders at the water's edge trusting in providence and preferring death to slavery in the fort william jasper a sergeant perceived that the flag had been cut down by a ball from the enemy and had fallen over the ramparts colonel said he to moultrie don't let us fight without a flag what can you do asked moultrie the staff is broken off then said jasper i'll fix it on a halberd and place it on the merlon of the bastion next the enemy and leaping through an embrasure and braving the thickest fire from the ship he took up the flag returned with it safely and planted it as he had promised on the summit of the merlin the calm sea gleamed with light the almost vertical sun of midsummer glared from a cloudless sky and the intense heat was increased by the blaze from the cannons on the platform all of the garrison threw off their coats during the action and some were nearly naked moultrie and several of the officers smoked their pipes as they gave their orders the defence was conducted within sight of those whose watchfulness was to them the most animating they knew that their movements were observed from the housetops of charleston by the veteran armstrong and the little army at Hadrell's point by gadston at fort johnson who was almost near enough to take part in the engagement and was chafing with discontent at not being himself in the centre of danger Exposed to an incessant cannonade which seemed sufficient to daunt the bravest veterans, they stuck to their guns with the greatest constancy. Hit by a ball which entered through an embrasure, McDaniel called out to his brother soldiers, I am dying, but don't let the cause of liberty expire with me this day. The slow, intermittent fire which was skillfully directed against the Commodore and the brave seamen on board the Bristol shattered that ship and carried wounds and death. Never had a British squadron experienced so rude an encounter. Neither the tide nor the wind suffered them to retire. Once the springs on the cables of the Bristol were swept away, as she swung round with her stern toward the fort, she drew upon herself the fire of all the guns that could be brought to bear upon her. The slaughter was dreadful. Of all who in the beginning of the action were stationed on her quarter-deck, not one escaped being killed or wounded. At one moment, it is said, the commodore stood there alone, an example of unsurpassed intrepidity and firmness. Morris, his captain, having his forearm shattered by a chain shot, and also receiving a wound in his neck, was taken into the cockpit, but after submitting to amputation, he insisted on being carried on the quarter deck once more where he resumed the command, and continued it till he was shot through the body. When feeling dissolution near, he commended his family to the providence of God and the generosity of his country meanwhile the eyes of the commodore and of all on board his fleet were frequently and impatiently and vainly turned toward the army if the troops would but cooperate he was sure of gaining the island for at about one o'clock he believed that he had silenced the guns of the rebels and that the fort was on the point of being evacuated if this were so clinton afterward asked him why did you not take possession of the fort, with the seamen and marines whom you practiced for the purpose? And Parker's rejoinder was that he had no prospect of speedy support from Clinton, but the pause was owing to the scarcity of powder, of which the little that remained to Moultrie was reserved for the musketry as a defense against an expected attack from the land forces. Lee should have replenished his stock, but in the heat of the action Moultrie received from him this letter, If you should unfortunately expend your ammunition without beating off the enemy or driving them on ground, spike your guns and retreat. A little later, a better gift and a better message came from Rutledge, now at Charleston. I send you 500 pounds of powder. You know our collection is not very great. Honor and victory to you and our worthy countrymen with you. Do not make too free with your cannon. Be cool and do mischief." These 500 pounds of powder with 200 pounds from a schooner lying at the back of the fort were all the supplies that Moultrie received. At three in the afternoon, Lee, on a report from his aide to Camp Bird, sent Muhlenberg's Virginia riflemen to reinforce Thompson. A little before five, Moultrie was able to renew his fire. At about five, the Marines in the ship's tops, seeing a lieutenant with eight or ten men remove the heavy barricade from the gateway to the fort, thought that Moultrie and his party were about to retreat, but the gate was unbarred to receive a visit from Lee. The officers, half naked and begrimed with the day's work, respectfully laid down their pipes as he drew near. The general himself pointed two or three guns, after which he said to Moultrie, Colonel, I see you are doing very well here. You have no occasion for me. I will go up to town again. And thus he left the fort when at a few minutes past seven the sun went down in a blaze of light the battle was still raging though the british showed signs of weariness the inhabitants of charleston whom the evening sea breeze collected on the battery could behold the flag of crescent liberty still proudly waving and they continued gazing anxiously till the short twilight was suddenly merged in the deep darkness of a southern night when nothing was seen but continued flashes Followed by peals, as it were, of thunder coming out from a heavy cloud. Many thousand shot were fired from the shipping, and hardly a hut or a tree on the island remained unhurt. But the works were very little damaged, and only one gun was silenced. The firing from the fort continued slowly, and the few shot they were able to send were heard to strike against the ship's timbers. Just after nine o'clock, a great part of his ammunition being expended in a cannonade of about ten hours. His people fatigued, the Bristol and the experiment nearly wrecks, the tide of ebb almost done, with no prospect of help from the army at the eastward, and no possibility of being of any further service, Sir Peter Parker resolved to withdraw. At half past nine, his ships slipped their cables and dropped down with the tide to their previous moorings. Of the four hundred and thirty five Americans in the fort who took part in this action, all but eleven remained alive. And of those, but twenty six were wounded. At so small a cost of life had Charleston been defended and a province saved. End of section eighty two. This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Colleen McMahon.